All right, so here's a question. What would you do if you lived forever? All right, I think it's in our answer to this hypothetical that we discover what we believe life to be really about. Usually we ask the kind of similar question, but in different terms. We say, what would you do if you knew you only had a year to live, right? But what if you knew that you didn't have an expiration date, all right? I think that there have been many examples of this kind of thing in literature and in film before. Lots of things explore this question from the picture of Dorian Gray, if you've ever read that or seen the terrible movie adaptation. The protagonist sells his soul to live forever while his portrait increasingly reveals his sin. And also we have the Lord of the Rings, right, where the the elf Arwen, right? She gives up immortality for love. Aw, right? And then you have the Holy Grail Knight from Indiana Jones who has to live in that cave forever, which is very sad. And from these characters and other characters, we kind of get the sense that there's something wrong with immortality, right? Or at least how we view the concept of immortality. And I think we all kind of realize deep down that if we were given the opportunity to live forever, we would have no idea what we should be doing, right? Like, do I learn all the languages? Or do I like visit every country in the world that I've always wanted to visit? Do I like order a latte at every specialty coffee shop in the world? Josue, that would be yours, right? Yeah, we have no idea because I think we would realize that we would start getting tired of ourselves tired of our own ambitions and maybe even our own concept of pleasure. Not having to worry about death and the cosmic anxiety that death produces only kind of leaves us worrying about the very personal anxiety of our own existence. Immortality is kind of an idea that humanity has always flirted with in one way or another, which kind of suggests that it's fundamental to who we are, or at least the desire for it is. And yet, if we ever attained immortality or longer life, would we actually enjoy it? There's an old uh, Puritan Christian author who describes something similar to this phenomenon when he says, never doth a soul know what solid joy and substantial pleasure is till, once being weary of itself, it renounces all property and gives itself up to the author of its being. I think in this quote, we kind of see the key. It discloses that life was never meant to be about pleasing ourselves. If that's what we believe life is for, then the Bible assures us that we have absolutely nothing to look forward to. And what we're going to look at today, as I said earlier, is this mysterious biblical figure named Enoch, who is best known for cheating death, or so it seems. We're going to start our talk this morning by looking at what the book of Hebrews has to say about him before we get to the story in the Hebrew Bible, in the book of Genesis, where his story is actually found, all right? So Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5. It should be on the screen behind me. It says, By faith, Enoch was taken up 
so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Let's just stop there, okay? This is crazy stuff, right? This is like some close encounters stuff right here, right? He never died, which has led Bible interpreters and scholars for thousands of years to ask the question, okay, so where did he go? Did he get beamed up to the enterprise? Or like, what are we talking about here? Well, Jewish literature is filled with references to this guy as kind of like a, an apocalyptic superhero, okay? My favorite, my personal favorite is this ancient source that says that after this guy Enoch was taken by God, he became known as the mystical angel Metatron. <laughs> I did not say Megatron, but if you notice, that's probably where the Transformers got it from, okay? They stole it from the Jews, which is pretty normal, right? <laughs> I can say that because I am one. But anyway, so there's a lot of debate about what this guy's final destination was. And it's clear that it was some type of like afterlife situation going on. He was with God. But the author of Hebrews focuses less on the question of where he was taken and more on the question of why he was taken. Further in verse 5 that we just read, it says, Now, before he was taken he was commended as having pleased God, okay? So something about Enoch, something about this dynamic caused God to go all like invasion of the body snatchers and just grab him, okay? God was pleased with something about him. So what does it mean to please God? Well, we know that it's different than pleasing ourselves or pleasing others, but we're not quite clear on what it means to please God. So in terms of that, most of us know what it means to please ourselves or to please others. And many would agree that it's selfish to make our lives only about pleasing ourselves, which is why altruism is such an extremely high value in our society, right? But what most people don't understand is that altruism is usually just another way to feel good about ourselves because it makes us feel good about ourselves. Like, I don't know if you've ever had this happen to you, like, or when you like anonymously buy coffee for the person behind you in line, or if you've had that done for you, and you like, anyone ever had that done for them before? It's pretty nice, right? And they might never get a chance to say thank you. But if you're the person who did it, you walk away going, all right, chuck up another point for me in the awesome book. But beyond that, many of us, struggle with pleasing other people, not just ourselves, but pleasing other people out of kind of issues of self-worth or anxiety. And we convince ourselves with statements like, oh, I'm just a people person. I just love being there for people. But we're actually just worried about other people's perceptions of us. There is a very convicting book that if you ever get a chance to read it, I would highly recommend it called Pleasing People. And the author, Lou Priolo, says this about people-pleasing. He says, people-pleasers in social situations are not thinking about how to make other people feel good. They're worrying about saying or doing something that will damage others' opinion of them. It's selfishness at its core. So ironically, pleasing other people tends to be more about 
ourselves and how we look to other people. And if you think this might be you, or if you've never considered this before, here are a few diagnostic statements that are true of people pleasers, and you can see if any of these are true of you. One, you apologize too much, or when apologies are not truly necessary, you still apologize. You constantly seek validation and approval from others. You try to avoid conflict at all costs. You have difficulty accepting compliments. You are more focused on what you should do rather than what you want to do. You fear exposing your own faults and mistakes to others. You have trouble expressing your own views and opinions that differ from others. You feel responsible for the happiness and well-being of others. And lastly, you feel drained and worn out from trying to take care of others, right? Ouch, <laughs> yikes. I think pretty much all of us could find ourselves in one of those. But this attitude of pleasing others just to please ourselves also affects how we relate to God. People pleasers tend to study other people to know what it is that we can do to please them rather than how we could actually love them. And as we'll see, pleasing God is a lot more complex than just doing what he says, but it's also a lot more simple than anxiously following rules. It has to do with him taking pleasure in us, not just what we do, but who we are. So it says that Enoch pleased God. How did Enoch please God? In order we, to find out, we need to look back at the original story of Enoch in the book of Genesis. So we're going to flip back to Genesis chapter 5, and it should also be on the screen. Those of you who follow our church reading plan may have noticed that our text this week was from Genesis chapter 5 and that it was somewhat different, right? Genesis 5 uh, is the only place in the Hebrew Bible that Enoch is mentioned, and it is in the middle of a genealogy, which I know is everybody's favorite genre of biblical literature, right? Enoch only gets three little verses in the whole Old Testament. So to understand the significance of those verses, we need to zoom out and see this genealogy as a whole. So let's give it a try, shall we? Genesis 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Okay, let's stop there, all right? <laughs> I think you get the picture. Yes, it's a list of really old guys, which gives everyone stress flashbacks of history class, as it did for me, right? But let's just sit with it for just a moment. The genealogy that we just read, that there's more of, is more than just a list of people. It is a pattern. 
And the key to understanding genealogies in the Bible is to look for the pattern and then to look for where that pattern is broken. And then precisely at that point, we will find where the author tries to make their point. So instead of reading through the rest of the names, I have done the hard work for you and created a pattern slide, all right? So there it goes, all right? When father name had lived number years, he fathered son name. Father name lived after he fathered son name big number years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of father name were really big number years and he died, okay? So that is the pattern in general. You just plug in a name here and there and then... So first of all, you might be wondering, as most good people of Los Angeles in the 21st century would, what is the deal with their ages, right? Why are they so old? What is going on? Is this even like, is this science fiction? What is happening? So there are lots of theories about this. And actually, what people have done is tried to add up all of the ages of these patriarchs to get the age of the earth. But the important thing to understand here is that it is not about that at all. The author of Genesis is not writing this list so we can have the right dates for historical record, okay? Genealogies like this were actually a very common thing in ancient times, where the ages of kings and patriarchs were exaggerated to make them seem important, okay? So archaeologists have actually found an ancient tablet in the land of Sumer listing a genealogy where some of the kings lived to be over 14,000 years old, okay? So this is a quote from that document, no joke. It's, the document is called The Rulers of Lagash, okay? This is what it says. In those days, a child spent 100 years in diapers. <laughs> After he had grown up, he spent 100 years without being given any task to do, okay? <laughs> Parents, can you imagine 100 years worth of diapers or a diaper? I just got so much stress when I read that the first time. We were potty training my son, Levy, right now, and it's just, it's the worst thing ever. But anyway, so that's ridiculous, right? And the list that we have in Genesis by comparison, is actually pretty tame, right? 900 compared to 14,000. But if you think about it, these long lives aren't actually that crazy of a thing to imagine. It makes complete sense in a world where the original intention of humanity that God had was for us to live forever. If we accept the premise that God created this world for people to exist eternally, then abnormally long lives are not so abnormal after all. But what the author wants us to discover in all of this is that there is a pattern. They lived so long, and yet, like it says at the end of each entry, and they died. This refrain is repeated over and over and over again to highlight the effects of the curse in the book of Genesis. The curse on humanity because of sin is death. Humanity had been driven out of God's presence from the Garden of Eden, starting with Adam, and this result was death. It was the consequence of sin, and it was never a part of the plan. Humanity as a whole now lives with 
this kind of cosmic anxiety about what to do with our lives in the face of death. So mostly we don't talk about it, right? But we don't actually fear death. I don't think most people fear death. I think what we mostly fear is what is beyond death, the unknown, where all of the things that we have done during this life, all of the people that we have connected to, suddenly those connections are no more. Psychologist Carl Jung put it this way. He said, there no longer exists any hope of a relationship for all the bridges have been smashed at one blow. This is the source of our anxiety. However, with Enoch, the seventh name on the list, we have a break in the pattern. And this break in the pattern of the genealogy also discloses the clue to breaking the curse of death. Read with me in verse five, or sorry, chapter five, verse 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 30, 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Do you see how this differs from all of the other names on the list where it should say he lived and he died? Instead, it says he walked with God. And this phrase, walked with God, is actually what the author of Hebrews quotes, but in the Greek, instead, it's translated as he pleased God. And the connection of these two concepts, pleasing God and walking with God, is crucial to how we understand this story. And the apostle Paul actually does this several times in the, two, in the New Testament. He connects these concepts and shows us how interrelated they are. In Colossians 1.10, he says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. What is being communicated here? Is it saying that if we behave like Enoch and God is pleased with you, that you're gonna get beamed up to the enterprise too? I don't think so, right? <laughs> that would be cool. But anyway, something Enoch did or something in Enoch reverses or nullifies the effects of the curse of death. What is it? It is walking with God. It is a relationship with the living God. A relationship with the creator of the universe is the only thing that transcends the universe. This is what everyone is looking for because it is what we were made for. Genesis tells the story of our sweet intimacy with God that was ruptured by our attempts to please ourselves instead of him. And then it immediately plants the seed of hope that we can be reunited with him and fulfill the purpose that we were created for, which is love. It is out of love that God created the world and it is out of love that God has promised to rescue the world and his people. And in the story of Enoch, God intervenes within what has become the normal experience 
of everyday life, which is death. We do not live in a closed universe with fixed rules. God can and does intervene in what has become the natural order of things, living, working, dying. Instead, we have in the story of Enoch a glimpse of restoration, of how things were meant to be. We all know that life is supposed to be more than just this boring trajectory that has been laid out for us, right? As a pastor in Australia says, he said, you know, you're going to have this nice life, be tolerant, go to Ikea, have a few coffees, and then you die. Somewhere quiet where you're not upsetting anyone. That's very important, right? (laughs) We know that we were meant for more. We know that we were meant to be satisfied only in the context of a relationship to God. The character and the quality of our existence depends entirely on how we relate to God. So maybe you're here and you're saying, yes, I get it, I know I'm supposed to please God, and I know that he will reward me for it, I get it. But as we saw earlier, some of us think that pleasing God means placating God. Like if we just figure out what God likes and we do those things, maybe God will leave us alone so we can do whatever it is that we actually want to do. But as we saw, this is just another avenue to please ourselves. And in the story of Enoch, it shows us that you can live long enough to exhaust life of all potential novel experiences, but it is not nearly as good as a short walk with your creator. Enoch's life was so much about enjoying his relationship with God that God knew it would satisfy his deepest desire to start enjoying eternity with him if he took him home ahead of schedule. If you're here and you are a Christian, if God were to give you the deepest desire of your heart right now, would it include him or not? What else could possibly be a desire fulfilling enough to bear the weight of our eternity? This question is just as much for those who don't claim to follow Jesus. C.S. Lewis, as he often does, puts it to us very clearly and very poetically. He says, to please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in his son, it seems impossible a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. God really does desire to be with us and love us in spite of our inability to conceive that. But we cannot please God by our own efforts. Our relationship with God has been tainted by sin and God knew that it had to be dealt with. And this is where we find the cure. Would you jump back over to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse six. It says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. What this means is that faith, as we've been saying through this series, is not just a generic wish. It is not a generic faith. It is a warranted certainty in God. It is faith 
in the one who pleased God perfectly, and that is Jesus. Jesus is the only one to ever please God perfectly, who has gone beyond the grave and has come back. He has had victory over the intrusion that is death, the painful monotony of it that we see all around us every day. And with Enoch, God punched a hole in the cosmos to highlight what pleases him, which is faith, a faith that enables genuine relationship with him, the relationship that we were meant for. And now, with Jesus' death and resurrection, the curse has been broken. And for those of us who trust in him, death does not have the last word. It has no claim on us, which removes our cosmic anxiety. But it also does away with our personal anxiety. Because now pleasing God is trusting in the finished work of Jesus on our behalf. Because of what Jesus did, God sees you through the lens of his son. And he says about you what he says about Jesus. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter. In you, I am well pleased. We don't ever have to worry about earning God's favor. He wants us to be satisfied in him alone through Jesus. So what does it actually look like? What does walking with God relationally, like Enoch did, look like? The writer of Hebrews tells us, he says, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. We believe he exists, we earnestly seek him, and we earn his reward, or rather, we receive his reward. So first, how do we walk with a God that we cannot see, right? We believe that he exists. That's kind of like a really fundamental part of having a relationship with somebody. As Jesus said to his disciple Thomas, his disciple who doubted his resurrection until he physically touched him, he said, do you believe because you see? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe, which is us. Enoch didn't have that luxury either of seeing, of physically walking with God like Adam and Eve, who walked with God in the Garden of Eden, which actually might be one of the reasons that Adam didn't make this list in the book of Hebrews. He was not commended for his faith because he didn't have to have faith. He lived with God, like right there. But it's not just that we can't see God. It is that God is actually beyond our ability to grasp with our five senses in the first place. The famous blind and deaf author, Helen Keller, makes this crystal clear when she says, I can see in what you call the dark, but which to me is golden. I can see a God-made world, not a man-made world. When it comes to a relationship with God, we could learn a thing or two from Helen Keller. <laughs> so we must believe that he exists, and we also must 
earnestly seek him. This is a perpetual thing. It means allowing the things that please God to reshape our desires away from gratifying ourselves and others only as a means to please ourselves. As Ephesians 5.10 says, it says, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. We don't have to do anything to figure out what will bring us immediate gratification, right? Our technology screams instant gratification at us all day long. But to be rewired to please God, who takes pleasure in pleasing God, is a process. It is a continual process, which means not giving up, which means not quitting when pleasing God means being at odds with people around you or being seen as maybe being out of touch with culture. For example, when being honest at your job gets you fired or when not joining in on gossip pushes you out of your circle of friends or when not binging every single new show on Netflix means you can't relate to your coworkers or something. I don't know, it's probably, there's more to it than that, but this is why pleasing God is a matter of faith. We trust that the outcome of situations where pleasing God has dire consequences will ultimately yield the best possible result. And finally, we have a faith in the reward that transcends our present circumstances. And if we learn anything from this whole series of faith and all of the different characters that we study, we will learn that when you place faith in God, you cannot expect the same results every time. We aren't promised the same result as Enoch, who was just plucked from the earth, right? As we saw last week, Abel trusted in God and he died. Enoch trusted in God and he was taken. What we see from this is that God does not owe us a certain quality of life, but in Jesus, he has given you love that is stronger than death. Death was and is the consequence for choosing to please ourselves rather than receiving the ultimate pleasure of being with God. But as we saw, the message is not make God happy so that you can go to heaven when you die, all right? Living a life pleasing to God is not a way to cheat death. It is a response of gratitude to the one who loved us and made a way to be with us by his own death so that we can enjoy our relationship with him beyond death forever. Because going to heaven is not much of a reward unless your chief desire is to be with God. To be overwhelmed with the kind of love that satisfies more deeply than we could possibly imagine. The kind of love that spills out into all of the things that we most enjoy about life. But finally, when we see him face to face, consummated in praise of their maker. And now we have an opportunity to engage in a foretaste of that, that bliss, that intimacy with God as we turn to respond to him. Pray with me.